Well, good evening again. Uh, my name is Andrew, and if uh, you are new or newish amongst us, I do want to add my welcome to Ethan's. I'm one of the pastors here at church, and it's great that you've come out tonight to hear God speak as we work through this passage. And so uh, my prayer is that as we go through this tonight, uh, you'll be able to see something clearly that you may not have seen before, something that you may have missed before uh, about Jesus, our King. Here at EV, we're in the habit of working through books of the Bible, uh, and this term, we've, we've reached the final third of Luke's Gospel. You may have been around from the beginning, but in case you weren't, I wanted to remind us about how Luke starts his Gospel, how he starts it as he writes to his dear friend, Theophilus. And so in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, he tells us that he has sought to compile a narrative of the things that have been fulfilled or accomplished amongst us. And so as we have journeyed with Luke through his gospel account, we've been looking for the accomplished work of Jesus, the, the fulfillment of promise, promises about a future king. For verse 3, it seemed good to Luke since he carefully investigated everything from the very first to write it to us in an orderly sequence about this king, about this divine king worth following. And so We've been following Jesus ever since he set his face towards Jerusalem in chapter 9. And for 10 chapters, we've been following him as he journeys towards Jerusalem. And tonight, today, is the climactic point that Luke's been working towards so far. He's been building towards this point where, where Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. And we're going to be reminded of why Jesus is the king, why he's the king worth following. So how about we pray that God would help us understand His Word tonight. Please join me. Heavenly Father, as we pause to stop and come out on a Sunday evening to hear from You, we pray that as we gather, You would help us now. Help us to understand Your Word. Would You do a work in our hearts by Your Spirit? And would You help us tonight to see why you are the king worth following. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, how many of you were here in July last year? Hands up. July 7th, you may remember it well. Uh, last year, you may have had trouble getting to uni on July 7th. You may have had trouble getting to work if you're a worker. It may have been the day that you had to take public transport for the first time in your life. Uh, it may be the day that you actually decided to skip class because everyone else was doing it too. It, it may be that on the 7th of July last year, uh, you remember that day because the streets were packed. There was an estimated 80,000 people in Queen Street and down at the Viaduct Harbour. There was security and Toyota Hiluxes in the street. There was ticker tape and there was rain. Auckland's always raining. Unfortunately, I, I wasn't here, but man, I, I wish I was. You see, I'd been following the 35th America's Cup very closely. You only have to ask my wife. I was in Queensland, but I was watching it live streamed at the early hours of the morning. Uh, sleep for me at those days was not important. On the seventh day of the seventh month last year, the old mug, the, the oldest sporting trophy in history, came to town. It came home to New Zealand and Auckland, well, we celebrated. Even the rain didn't hold us back. This was a triumphant entry of Grant Dalton and Emirates Team New Zealand. 
Against all odds, they had smashed Oracle Team USA 8-1. The America's Cup was once again New Zealand's Cup. I don't know how many of you were following the America's Cup, but for me, that, that was an exciting time. Uh, those images of them coming down Queen Street and around the viaduct, they're still fixed in my mind today. It was a historic day with a fitting procession. And this is somewhat like what we see in the passage before us today. Jesus has been relentlessly heading towards the town of Jerusalem, and now he's about to arrive. God's king is coming to town. And whenever anyone comes to town, preparations must be made. Announcements are given, and an entourage is put in place. Transport is arranged. The arrival of anyone important takes organization. And that's what we see Jesus doing in these opening few verses as he approaches two little towns to the east of Jerusalem. So keep your Bibles open in chapter 19 and pick it up with me from the, the second half of verse 28. It's going to be on the screen hopefully as well. Uh, Jesus, he's up ahead, he's going to Jerusalem, and as he approaches Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sends two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. Now, Jesus, he has his entourage of disciples, and here we see him organizing his transportation. But it's interesting, this mode of transport is somewhat unusual for a king, right? Kings don't ride on donkeys, they ride on Horses. Horses are, are taller, they're faster, they're stronger, they're less smelly than donkeys. Kings, kings, they rode on horses, not donkeys. But more than that, this donkey was a foal, a, a young colt, one that had never been ridden before. And so the first thing we are to note is that this is no ordinary king. This king is different to any human king. This king is humble. And yet riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a, on a young donkey, makes him no less than a king, as we'll see in a bit. Now, I, I was fascinated by the four magic words that the disciples used uh, when they were instructed to, to, to obtain this donkey. They, all they said was, the Lord needs it, and that was it. I was thinking, like, that just would not work for me today. Uh, we recently moved back uh, to, to Auckland from Australia, and I was looking for a car last month. And could you just imagine me going to the dealer and saying, uh, okay, I'm, I'm just looking for a car. I've recently joined a church, so I'm a pastor. It's like ministry purposes. Um, you know, uh, the Lord needs it. Can I, can I have it? <laughs> like, that, that's just not going to happen, right? Whereas it, my friend, he's a policeman in the, um, the diplomatic protection service here in New Zealand. And if he came up to me and was like, hey, mate, uh, the prime minister needs your car, uh, there'd be no questions asked. I'd be like, sure. Jacinta can go for a spin. Uh, <laughs> Imagine the bragging rights you'd have, right? She was driving my car. But, but, but the question is, what does this tell us about the way in which this donkey was obtained? What does this tell us? Well, it tells us that Jesus, he wasn't a stranger. People knew who he was. And there's actually a clue a little bit further on in verse 37. Take a look. You see, he had been performing miracles. He had been healing people on days that he wasn't supposed to heal them, the Sabbath. He'd been healing people with leprosy. He'd been healing blind men and making them see again. Word gets around in first century Israel. Jesus, he's this miracle worker with authority. 
And so it should be no surprise to us that Luke doesn't record a a long-winded discussion from the owners. He simply says, verse 32, the disciples who were sent left and found it just as he, Jesus, had told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owners said to them, why are you untying the donkey? Here it is, the Lord needs it. And then they bring the colt to Jesus. They throw their robes over and help Jesus get on. No questions asked. To these owners, when the representative of this miracle worker shows up, and they need their donkey for the king's entrance, well, who wouldn't be happy with that? And Jesus, he's, he's actually in control of these events. He's orchestrating them to bring about the accomplishment of his arrival. In fact, 500 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah, well, he spoke of just such a king, the coming king of Zion, the future king of Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it'll be on the screen, reads like this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, at that time, the disciples wouldn't necessarily have put two and two together, but that's the beauty of hindsight, right? Like 2020 vision hindsight, you guys heard of that? There's something more going on here than just a humble king making an entrance. The second thing to note is that this is the promised king. So, he is the humble promised king, and Luke, like the other gospel writers, he wants us to see this important fact. See, if Jesus is, in fact, the promised King of Jerusalem, then it actually makes sense that He makes His grand entry, albeit on a donkey, just as promised. Just as the America's Cup Parade was fitting for its occasion, so too is Jesus' entrance. Now, it's helpful for us to note that uh, at this particular time, the Feast of Tabernacles was also taking place. The Jews, they, they loved to feast, they'd have many feasts each year. And so you've got hundreds and thousands of Jews heading into Jerusalem for this week-long celebration. It's a week-long celebration that culminates with Passover. Some estimates suggest that uh, over two million people would have been in and around Jerusalem at that time. And so you've got to imagine this scene. There's Jesus. He's sitting on someone's jacket on a donkey. He's heading down the Mount of Olives amongst masses of people. And And the crowd of followers, they're all praising God at the top of their lungs. They recognize Jesus as the king, and they want to to shout for joy. Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is a, a triumphant day. It's the day we've all been waiting for. Anticipation is high. Crowds are lining the street. Everyone has ticker tape in their hand, ready to throw. People are even taking off their jackets and putting them on the ground. There is dust up your nostrils, the smell of donkey walking by. But that doesn't matter. This is exciting because the creator of the universe is coming down the road. Jesus is coming to town. And we are to rejoice. The king is here to receive his kingdom just as promised. Now, verse 38, it's actually a song from Psalm 118, and this is a psalm that it speaks of a victorious king coming with the approval of Yahweh, with the authority of God. And Luke wants us to make these connections. He wants us to see 
who Jesus truly is, that he's the humble king who is fulfilling the promises, the promised king of Scripture. This is the king who brings peace. You may have noticed that in verse 38. Peace not just on earth, but in heaven also. So Jesus is no ordinary king. You see, ever since uh, Adam and Eve first sinned, the, the hostility between God and mankind has been evident. You may have been here in January over our summer series. We were looking at a, a bunch of questions that plague us, that point to the fact that we live in a broken world. And yet here we see that peace is about to be accomplished. The primary reason for Jesus to step into the world was to bring about peace, that peace between God and man. And it will become a reality within a week of Jesus entering Jerusalem. As this king is beaten and mocked, as a crown of thorns is pressed into his skull, as he is hung on a cross to take upon himself the full wrath of God that we deserve. In God's kind mercy, he doesn't give us what we deserve, but instead he provides Jesus as a substitute for us so that peace can be established. That, that reconciliation between God and man is available. We are to rejoice. That is good news. Jesus, the Prince of Peace. This King has come to town, this humble, promised King of Peace. And Jesus has come to each of us in one sense or another. For, for some of us, you like, maybe like me, grew up in a, in a Christian home, and so we met Jesus as kids. For others of you, it may just have been in the last couple of years that you met Jesus. And in fact, if you might be here today and you don't yet trust in Jesus. And I want to say that's great. It's really great that you are here investigating the claims of Christianity and seeing for yourself who Jesus claims to be. Because this is the God that is coming to you tonight. He's knocking on the door of your heart and he's saying, I'm the humble, promised king that brings you peace with God. Jesus wants to be your king, but not against your will. Will you recognize him for who he is, like, like the disciples did, as the king who comes in the name of the Lord? Well, this is a joyous occasion, but it's a short-lived joyous occasion. I find it ironic that it's not really a triumphal entry at all. It's not triumphant because Jesus is still on his way from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem when he is met with resistance. The king is rejected before he even arrives in town. Jerusalem was uh, at this time controlled by the Romans. I'm not sure how well you know your church history, uh, but they were pretty savvy, the old Romans. Uh, I, I kind of like the way they operated because when they conquered new lands, they brought the people under submission but they would allow the people to appoint for themselves sort of a, a puppet king, a, a mini ruler that would rule and govern the way that Rome wanted them to, but it gave them the sense in which they were actually controlling themselves. And so the Jewish ruler who could rule within the bounds that were set by the emperor was a ruler that was not really well respected. And the emperor, Emperor Tiberius, uh, he was a real threat. If you did something wrong that Tiberius didn't like, well, you as the ruler, you're easily disposed of. He didn't need you there. He was just kind of playing nice. And this is exactly what happened to uh, Herod Archelaus. We heard about last week. He was the Jewish interarch. 
He was disposed of, though, over Jerusalem. And instead, Rome, they appointed Pontius Pilate. And so he was installed as the ruler. And so the Pharisees, they've already seen a Jewish ruler get disposed of. Pontius Pilate is there. Things are kind of okay. He was all all right in terms of helping them get on with life. And you've also got to remember that uh, it's party time in Jerusalem. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. And so these Pharisees, well, they're thinking to themselves, this isn't going to end well. This is not the time nor the place for some dude to be coming into town claiming he's the king. Not now, not like this. We need to shut this down. And so here they are. They find themselves amongst the crowd, watching this procession unfold. And they say to Jesus, verse 39, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answers them, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. When Jesus' reply here speaks of his divine authority, that even if the disciples did not speak, creation itself would. Inanimate objects have a better perception of what God is doing than the people that Jesus came to save. It's as if they've got rocks literally in their head. I wonder what that is for you, whether Jesus is an inconvenience to you, that this is the party season of your life, and now is just not an appropriate time to be considering Jesus as king. You don't want Jesus to rock the boat, and so you keep putting him off, and you put him off, and you think, oh, I'll sort that out next year, or the year after that. Friends, the king has come to town, and we see here in the Pharisees that the king was rejected. And next we see the response that was promoted in this king. And I find it fascinating. I find it fascinating. It's a response that we, in which we clearly see the love of the king. Do you know that there are only two occasions where Jesus was reduced to tears in the Bible? One, uh, when his friend Lazarus died. Uh, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Always good to know for Bible trivia. And and the second is here, as he approaches Jerusalem. And what's on view here is both Jesus' compassion and his justice. It's his compassion as he laments over Israel's stubbornness. The rejection of him this final time metaphorically drives the nails into Jesus' hands. It reduces the creator of the world to tears, and we get a rare insight into the heart of our loving God. Verse 41, as he approaches and sees the city, he weeps over it, saying, if you knew that, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? Basically, he's saying here, if you had understood that I was the king that brought peace, we wouldn't be in the situation that we find ourselves in now. But now, this has been hidden from your eyes. It literally breaks his heart to see his image bearers not recognize him as the creator, as the king. To see his image bearers reject him, it breaks his heart. Does it break yours? See, when God seeks to initiate a peace process with you on his terms, and they're rejected, that only leaves judgment. And if Jesus was to show up in Auckland today, his reaction would be the same. I'd expect him to be crying over the number of people who still don't recognize him as the king. 
This is a loving king who desires all people to turn and follow him. Why? Because they're his. They bear his image. And it's through his tears that he pronounces judgment on the city of Jerusalem. Like the prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah before him, Jesus here, he's prophesying an imminent imminent judgment that's going to come to Jerusalem. Jesus rejects Jerusalem because Jerusalem rejected him. This is a nation judged for failing to see the time of their visitation. They simply were not ready. And so pick it up at verse 43. Jesus says, For the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in you, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. History tells us that this has happened, just as Jesus said it would. In 68 AD, the Jews, they rebelled against the Romans, and so they were surrounded uh, at Jerusalem. The, the Romans, they surrounded Jerusalem for two years, and they laid siege to it. They basically prevented anyone from coming in and out of the city and waited for them to starve, waited for them to die off. They, they uh, waited, and then after two years, in 70 AD, the Romans finally breached the outer walls. And as they did, they began to systematically destroy the city. The final building to be destroyed was the temple, the burning and destruction of God's meeting place. And Josephus, a a Jewish historian, not a Christian, tells us that the city was so thoroughly demolished that, quote, no one would ever believe that the spot had been inhabited. Total devastation. Jesus was not kidding. Judgment was coming to Jerusalem. And Luke, he writes his gospel after this major event. And I take it Luke is deliberately highlighting the fact that Jesus is serious when he says, if you reject me, I will reject you. His pronouncement came true. Now, uh, Christy and I, my wife, uh, we like to go to the movies occasionally. We don't get to do it very often anymore because we have a, a one-and-a-half-year-old. Um, but every now and again, we like to get to the movies. And it's, it's interesting because Christy's really into Marvel movies. Are you guys into Marvel movies? I, I feel like I struck gold when I married Christy because I was like, we can just go to action like movies and it's great. Uh, so we watch things like The Avengers and there's a new Avengers movie coming out. It's called um, Infinity War. You may have heard of it. No? Great. Uh, Well, anyway, it's coming out in April, but right now you can watch the trailer for it. I won't show it to you, but the point is is that uh, I can watch the trailer for it now, but I can't yet see the full feature film. I have to wait until April. And this judgment on Jerusalem is like the movie trailer before its release. It's like a precursor, a mini version of the judgment spoken of in those final days. The question for us is, are we ready? Jesus has come and he promises to return. These prophecies, they were true once before. We would be stupid to ignore them, like the Pharisees did a second time. No one knows when Jesus is going to return, but now is the time to help people recognize him as the promised king who brings peace with God. 
if you're here tonight and you want to talk to someone about Jesus, you want to understand what it means to, to turn and to follow him as your king, then I'd love to chat to you after the service. Uh, or you can tick, uh, there's a little box on your connect card. You can um, tick that and someone will follow you up during the week. But don't leave tonight not taking, this, taking seriously the claims of Jesus. See for yourself who Jesus is before the full, full feature film is released in that final day. Well, after the king's response, we see the effect of the king. We see the king's reforms, as I've called it. And see, this king will always take you as, he, as you are, but he will never leave you as you are. A life lived for this king will see us being transformed into his likeness, removing the idols from within us and captivating us by who he is and what he's done for us. Uh, one of Christie's aunties has recently started working for one of these Bitcoin uh, companies. I don't know if you know much about Bitcoin. Um, I find it fascinating. I know nothing about Bitcoin. Um, <clears throat> but she was around for dinner the other week, and for over an hour, I was just captivated by hearing about this fantasy money that exists. Uh, like I said, I still have no real idea what it is or how it works or what I should be doing about it. But the point is, is that apparently Bitcoin is real. I can't deny that. People's lives are being shaped by it as they think through uh, the, how to do commerce in this new environment. Whether you like it or not, uh, Bitcoin has captivated millions of people recently. But the good news of Jesus is even more captivating, if only you'll take the time to listen. And it's in these final verses that we see a glimpse of, of what this looks like for first century Jews. And we need to understand that a big part of the temple system was sacrifices that were commanded in the Old Testament. And so what had happened is that in the temple, uh, people had set up stalls. They'd set up stalls inside the temple complex to sell the sacrificial animals that were needed to, to make atonements for their sins. And so as you rocked up to the temple, you, could, you had a smorgasbord there. You could get everything from pigeon to lamb. You, you could buy your sacrificial animal right there in the temple rather than having to bring it with you from your homeland. And then if you were coming from a different country where the currency was slightly different, don't worry, there were money changes there as well. Uh, these guys would love to take your money, they'd take a bit of a commission, they'd swap it for uh, the local currency so that you could then go and buy your pigeon and sacrifice it. All of these stools were set up to make a profit. This was a commercial enterprise, and Jesus, we see, he reforms the temple. He brings it back to its original purpose, a place to meet with God, a place where you can be captivated by God. And so we read from verse 45, Jesus goes into the temple complex and begins to throw out those who are selling. And he says, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of thieves. It's a quote from Isaiah 56. And every day he was teaching in the temple complex. The chief priests and scribes and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to destroy him, but they could not find a way to do it. Why? Because all the people were captivated by what they heard. You know, I used to think that <clears throat> this part of Jesus' story, this part of the narrative, was Jesus being super angry and upset as he drove the money changers out. Kind of a possessive king that was like, this is my house, you get out of here. But the way Jesus uh, is portrayed here in Luke, 
And the way Luke puts these verses together, I, I think I'm starting to see that um, the motive of Jesus is actually to restore the temple to its original purpose, to restore it to a house of prayer, to a place where you can meet with God, a place where God is taught faithfully, a place where people are captivated by God, the God of the Bible. And after Jesus ascended and uh, after He rose from the dead and ascended, He sent His Spirit to dwell in us. We live this side of a destructed temple. This is 2018. Now the place where we are to be captivated by Jesus is within us. We are living sacrifices for God. I wonder if Jesus was to show up and examine my life today, what would He find? If Jesus was to show up and examine your life today, what would He find in there? What would He need to drive out? Would it be money-related, like we see in the temple? Would it be Bitcoin? Or, or would your idols maybe be a little bit more subtle? Would they be a little bit more like pride and envy? How are you going at letting Jesus reform your life? Is your life clearly identified as a place of worship, a life lived worthy of the King? Have you been captivated by Jesus? Here at Uni Church, we're a bunch of people who want to be captivated by this historical Jesus. It's in our tagline, it's on your outlines. Captivated, grounded, growing. Here at Uni Church, we like to say that your best years as a Christian are ahead of you, and so you are to be continually reformed by Jesus into His likeness. Well, Here's the kicker. Jesus has come, and He is coming again. This King, He will visit again. The King will return. And interestingly, uh, the only other time the word for visitation in verse 44 is used in the Bible in this context is in 1 Peter 2. It's talking about Jesus' final return, the, the day of final visitation. If you guys have signed up to our uh, weekly or daily emails for Bible reading, you would have got this on Thursday, and you would have seen the parallel between the two verses. You see, the Bible is clear that Jesus came to bring peace. Jesus came in that first instance not to condemn the world, but to save it, John tells us. And yet the Bible is clear that Jesus will return. This King is coming back, and this time it won't be on a donkey. This time He'll be on a horse, a white horse, and when he comes to town a second time, he'll be coming to bring just judgment on those who have rejected his kingship. This is the picture that John paints for us in the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation 19, it's on the screen. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war in righteousness. Verse 16, and he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. What, what we have before us, friends, is history. Jesus was a real person. He entered Jerusalem on a cult just as was promised. Israel, they rejected him as king. In AD 70, the temple was destroyed. You do not need a Bible to tell you those facts. And Luke as a historian, he's seeking to help us understand the reality of what has been accomplished, what has been fulfilled in Jesus. 
He's showing us how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament promises, how he is the humble king of peace. And he is telling us not to be naive enough to get this wrong a second time. May we learn from the mistakes of the Pharisees. Don't reject Jesus as king. Humble yourself before him and accept his gift of peace, which wipes away your sins, putting you back in right relationship with the God who made you. Friends, the promised king of peace has come to town and he will come again. Are you ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a humble and loving king who sent Jesus to bring us peace with you. And Lord, we thank you that you're a God of compassion who desires all people to come into the loving knowledge of your son, Jesus. We ask this evening that you would help us to reflect on the way in which you are reforming us, transforming us into the likeness of Jesus. Would you convict us to remain captivated by your glorious grace. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.